0: I am traveling with this band everywhere I go from now on. They are incredible. Let's give them a big round of applause for their amazing gift. Thank you guys so much. Hey, what a joy and a pleasure to be with you. Um, We love Thanksgiving and Christmas as well. We have a rule in our family where we can only watch Elf after Thanksgiving because it's such a good movie. And also in our family for Thanksgiving, our tradition is that we always go to Vancouver, Canada for Thanksgiving. And we celebrate sushi giving. It's an amazing, amazing feast. It's an all-you-could-eat restaurant that we go to, and it's so, so good. Hey, wherever you might be watching this in the other campuses, here in the sanctuary, or maybe elsewhere in the church building... I want to invite you right now to kind of get on your feet. Let's rise to our feet right now because we're going to read God's Word. And historically, in the past, there have been many churches and many traditions where men, women, and children will rise to their feet in the reading of God's Word. And it's out of our joy and just love for God's Word. And this time, I want to invite you to read together God's Word. We're going to be reading from Luke chapter 17, verses 11 to 19. Let's read God's Word together. Now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Father, we thank you again so much for your word. We ask that at this time, your Holy Spirit would be here. We pray for your presence and for your power. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. And all God's people said, amen, amen. Well, friends, today as we study this particular passage, I want to first give you a little context to what we just read. Because oftentimes, I think when we read scripture, the temptation, at least for me, is to jump right into the application about how does this speak to me. Now, that's really important because we need God's word to apply to us so that we can grow in our faith, but we also need to learn what we just read. And as we read God's scripture, the question I want to ask you is, what's the context? Now, as we just read, Jesus is met by 10 men who have leprosy. If you look at the back of your Bible, oftentimes uh, there's a map, and in this map is a region called the Holy Lands where Jesus traveled. Now, if we had a very simple understanding of that map, we can kind of divide it in thirds. The top portion is an area called Galilee. The bottom portion is an area called Judea and in the middle we have a section of a land called Samaria occupied by Samaritans. Now Jesus and the disciples, they're in this region right here in between Galilee and Samaria and Jesus is about to head south to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is somewhere around here in Judea. It's a fairly long trip. It's in this section that Jesus is encountered by these 10 men who have leprosy. Now, in our world today, if you were to ask someone, hey, do you know what leprosy is? Most likely folks don't know what it is. For any biologist or scientist here, it's called Mycobacterium leprae. Not that you needed to know that, but I just wanted you to hear it. And the reason why we don't know it in the United States is because there's only about 100 new cases in our country every single year. It's very, very rare. However, during the time of Jesus, there was a lot of fear and paranoia around this, physically, around this physical illness. So these 10 lepers were very physically ill. This bacteria grew on their arms, their legs, and all over their bodies. It was kind of a flesh-eating bacteria. And as a result, those who had leprosy, those who were physically ill, they were basically kind of put into their own respective communities or enclaves. And just to give you a glimpse, and I think I shared this some months ago, If those who had leprosy had the audacity to leave their enclaves and enter into public places, the Bible in Leviticus actually gives instructions how they were supposed to act in public. In Leviticus chapter 13, verse 45, this is what it says. The leper in whom the plague is shall wear torn clothes, And the hair of his head shall hang loose. He shall cover his upper lip and shall cry, unclean, unclean. And that's the way that citizens were able to identify that you were a contagious, dangerous leper. So I want you to imagine someone having ripped clothes, hair unkept, cover their upper lips, And then screaming at the top of their lungs, unclean, leper coming through. And historians would tell us that it was like the parting of the Red Sea. People would scurry away in fear. And yet Jesus in our passage, he's not gripped by fear. There's tenderness. There's humanity. There's dignity. And I want you to realize that this story is one of many stories that show the heart of our Lord Jesus Christ, who gravitates to those who are vulnerable, who gravitates to those who are marginalized and lonely and sick, and the list goes on. Now, these lepers weren't just physically ill. They also had emotional and spiritual trauma. You see, any time someone saw a leper, their judgment, their assumption was, this person is cursed by God, which was absolutely the worst thing that you can imagine about someone else. To curse someone was the worst thing. And so anytime you saw a leper, hundreds, thousands of people walked past, even if they acknowledged him and said, "Mm -mm mm-mm-mm, here's a person who's cursed by God can you imagine the heaviness the emotional weight of that isolation and as a result they were simply seen as nobodies no stories no names insignificant inconsequential and yet Jesus comes to them he has compassion for them He loves them. He has mercy on them. There's such tenderness. Now, here's another thing that we can know about this particular context. These lepers, these ten men, even though we don't know their background, their stories, their narratives, I believe that they had faith. In Jesus, in some way or another, they had an encounter with Jesus, and they had faith in Jesus. And the reason why we know this is because when you read this passage in its original language, these lepers use this Greek word, and it's called "epistasis." And what this word means is quite unique. It's only in the Gospel of Luke. And usually it's only the disciples that use this word. And what does it mean? It means master. Master. There's a certain weight. There's a certain reverence. There's a certain, this person has authority over my life, and therefore I call you at peace. Now, the reason why I say it's imperfect is because why? As human beings, every single one of us, we have imperfect faith. Whether you've been a Christian for over 50 years in your life, or you're one of the 226 people that recently made a decision to publicly confess and profess your love for Jesus, as human beings, every single one of us, we have imperfect faith. And that's okay. Because this morning, I want you to realize that even if you don't have all the answers to every single question, even if you're still struggling with certain things in your life, God sees you, God loves you, and God invites you into his presence. And this is such good news. When I was a a young person, before I came to faith in Jesus, I struggled because in my imagination, I thought... I needed to have everything fixed in my life to get to Jesus. I needed to somehow resolve all my sins, all my mistakes, all my transgressions. I needed to be able to answer all of the robust theological questions that I was wrestling with before I got to Jesus. In other words, I wanted a perfect faith. And here's the thing. If you're obsessed with a perfect faith, it's because you think you're the answer to your life. You're not the answer to your life. We have imperfect faith in a perfect Savior, a perfect master, and his name is Jesus. So this morning, right now, if you're thinking, does God welcome me? I would say absolutely yes. And so here are these 10 lepers in their brokenness, in their illness, in their sickness, and yet in their simple, imperfect faith, they say, Master, Master, have mercy on us. And Jesus has mercy and tenderness and compassion, gives them instructions, and as they turn to go towards the priests in faith, a beautiful thing happens. The power of God to heal heals them. Now, this is good because a miracle just took place. Let's not easily, quickly bypass that the supernatural power of God healed these 10 lepers. But I also want you to realize that there's actually two miracles in this story. The miracle of their illness is one miracle. I actually believe there's even a greater miracle. And the greater miracle is that one of these lepers, as he goes to the priest, is healed, recognizes the transformative power, the healing power of God, stops and says, I don't just want to celebrate my healing. I want to celebrate this Jesus Christ who sees me, loves me, and heals me. And he's the one who returns. Now I want you to realize this concept, at another time, we'll talk about this, it's a concept called common grace. God has grace for the world, for his creation, but there's something powerful. When one of his creation chooses to stop and acknowledge that it's not just the gifts that we appreciate, we worship the giver of gifts And he turns around, comes to Jesus, gets onto his feet, and worships in a loud voice, Jesus, Jesus, Master, Savior. And this is the invitation for us. As we take a turn in our sermon today, I want to ask you the question, what does it mean to be the one, the one who chooses to come back? The one who chooses to recognize and acknowledge Jesus Christ. So let's talk about this. We've studied the context of our passage. Now we want to talk about what are some of the practical things. And I want to share with you five things. We'll go through it step by step, one by one. And I'm praying that the Holy Spirit might convict you and encourage you. And it's possible and likely that a couple of these might sound familiar because they were also themes in your journey and study through Philippians as well. So be the one who returns. It's a beautiful idea, a beautiful concept, but you actually have to be very prayerful, very intentional, very strategic, very purposeful. Now, one of my favorite authors is a, a Dutch Catholic priest by the name of Henry Nouwen. If you're interested in doing some reading over the holidays and Christmas, I would encourage you to just check out at the library or a bookstore this priest by the name of Henry Nouwen. He's written multiple books, and in one of these books, this is what he says about joy. He says, joy does not simply happen to us. We have to choose joy and keep choosing it every day. Now, you can substitute joy for gratitude does not simply happen to us. We have to choose gratitude and keep choosing it every single day. We could talk about faith. If you're anything like me, my natural gravitation is to go in my own way. I want to be my own Lord, my own master, my own driver of my car. I want to give myself credit for everything good that's happened in my life. And I have to choose to stop and turn and come to Jesus and say, you are Lord, Savior, and Master. Do you understand my point? You have to choose to be purposeful and intentional. So here's five practical things as we're kind of capping up both Philippians, but also looking towards this Thanksgiving and Christmas season. And here's the first one. It's this mantra that's so pervasive in our culture called, I don't have enough. We live, particularly in our Western world, if we're honest we know that there are competing idolatries in our world. Jesus in the Bible says that you can't worship both God and mamon. And mamon is a word for money. I would say our modern day interpretation of mamon is materialism. Now, please hear my heart. I'm not saying that you can't buy stuff. I'm not saying that you should not purchase presents for your guest speakers that come in from Seattle. That's not what I'm saying. I am saying that if we're not careful, we end up becoming so seduced and enamored by stuff in our life. And it's because the message that we keep hearing again and again on television, on radio, on advertisements, on internet is... We don't have enough. And as a result, I need to acquire more and more and more in my life. Now, I understand. I don't want to sound insensitive. In a room like this, I understand there are many unique stories and narratives. I know there are people going through hardships, unemployment, underemployment, other realities in our life. I also want to name the obvious. That if you have a roof over your head, if you've had at least two meals over the last 24 hours, if you have clothes on your body right now, we are considered materially among the most wealthy and privileged in the world. We have to simply name that and acknowledge it. 80% of the world live on less than 10 U.S. dollars a day. G.K. Chesterton, who is an English philosopher, theologian, who lived in the 1870s to 1940s, in one of his books, in response to the concept of materialism, this is what he writes. He says, there are two ways to get enough. One is to continue to accumulate more and more and more. The other is to desire less. You see, in a culture of materialism, There aren't enough toys to satisfy all the longings of our heart. So a simple, a simple exercise every single day is that as we go about work, as we enjoy amenities and gifts, is to operate from this function, I have enough. And God, I'm thankful for all that you've already given unto me. Here's the second thing that we can learn, and it's something that you probably know already, but it's good to be reminded of truth. And it's this, say no to the comparison game. Say no to the comparison game. Now, President Teddy Roosevelt wasn't a pastor or a theologian, but I think he says something in response to this that's so right at the... truth and heart. He says this, he says, comparison is the thief of joy. If we're obsessed looking at other people's life and situations, we forget all that God has already graced us with in our lives. Growing up as a kid many, many years ago, Comparison was still a challenge back then, but I was comparing myself to 22 other students in my first grade class at Sherman Elementary School in San Francisco, or just to my neighborhood kids on Pine Street in Nob Hill in San Francisco. Things have dramatically changed, and it's impacting not just Gen Z, not just millennials, but boomers. It's affecting every single one of us. And rather than just comparing ourselves with just the Jones, we're now comparing ourselves, as I've shared with you before, we're sharing, comparing our lives to the Jones, to the Smiths, to the Wongs, to the Kims, to the Tanakas, to the Patels, the Johansons, the Novaks. I'm trying to cover everybody at your church We find ourselves comparing ourselves with other people. And this is the reason why psychologists and therapists are warning us that people today, particularly young people, because of our relationship with social media, Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, and the list goes on, there is such a meteoric rise on something called social anxiety disorder. S A D think about this. We're connected like never before, but there's more social anxiety, more loneliness, more isolation than ever before. What's the remedy to the comparison game? We have to regularly soak in God's word that declares these words. I am who God says I am. That's who I am. I'm not the product of an image or some influencer or some social status. I am who God says I am. Before Jesus does anything public in his life, before any teaching, before any miracle, before any audience or crowd, before any disciples, as he's about to be baptized, the heavens open up, a dove descends, And we hear the voice of God says, you are my beloved. You are my beloved. Friends, you are a child of God. You are a son, a daughter of God. On you, God's favor rests. You are his beloved. That's good news. The third thing that we can learn is this question, what's your focus? Now what do I mean by what's your focus? We tend to have growing affection for the things that take our attention. We have growing affection for the things that take our attention. So rather than focusing on Jesus, God's work in my life, God's heart, God's character, God's Holy Spirit, God's Son Jesus, Rather than focusing on God's character, if we're not careful, we become distracted by other things. And it's not that those things are bad in themselves, but if we're not careful, we become very seduced, and we begin to think, my life only has meaning if I have those things in my life. If I get that car, oh, then I'll truly be blessed. If I have that relationship, I'll truly be blessed. If I have that job promotion, I'll truly be blessed. And as we're focusing on other things, we forget that God is at work trying to show and reveal himself right now in that moment. So I'll give you an example. And I wanna be very sensitive around this. Relationships and friendships. If you're single, your life doesn't begin when you're married. That's a lie. It's preposterous. It's ridiculous. God is at work in your life right now. Jesus was single. Paul was single? I mean, where did this come in this church where, like, only if you're married is truly when you're blessed? Right now, in your season of life, God is present. God loves you, and he's at work revealing his heart and character to you. But if we're not careful, if you're single, you're like, oh, married life. If you're married, you're like, oh, single life. (laughs) Now, my wife is here. That was a a story that my friend told me. (laughs) You see, we end up focusing on that which we want or we end up focusing on the ailments of our life, the troubles in our life, the heartbreak in our life. I'm not suggesting that you be naive, but if you're going to spend 24 hours, seven days a week, obsessed with the problems of your life, problems become a monster and it grows and it grows and it grows and it grows and it grows. That's why I think the author of Hebrews says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. When you wake up in the morning, let's just be honest. What's the first thing that we do? Sometimes if I'm not careful, it's get on my phone, Take a selfie of my bad morning hair. <laughs> Turn on the news, and I'm like, oh, my goodness. And then I get discouraged. And then I feel depressed by all the shouting and screaming that's going on in our rhetoric. And then I think to myself, I'm not doing enough to fight justice. And the list goes on and on. And I'm not suggesting that we're naive to the things in our world. I'm simply saying, put everything in the perspective of what Nick in his poem did. Jesus' eternity in the backdrop. Here's the fourth thing that we can learn, and it's joy beyond circumstances. Now, this obviously should sound familiar because your study through Paul's letter to the church in Philippi could be summed up by the word joy. And you learned even last week and in the past couple months That the word of God encourages us, despite circumstances, to learn to be content, to experience joy. But I want to stop here just for a moment. And I want to unpack this. Because I think as Christians, one of the most dangerous things that we can think or even say to others is to take this at a very monolithic, single perspective level and tell people that are suffering, suck it up. The word of God says, have joy. And I think when we jump from A to Z, we miss so much of the depth and richness of scripture. Sometimes we'll take this and say, well, it's God's will. And I want you to realize, I think sometimes we mistake God's will with a word called God's sovereignty. So, In my conviction, as I read God's word, when there's war and famine and death, when there's conflict, when there's sin, when there's abuse and trauma, I just think it's very dangerous and erroneous to assume, oh, this is God's plan for your life. Someone here right now, you're sitting here, and you've experienced the trauma of abuse in your life. It's nonsense and dangerous theology to say, this is God's will for your life. That's not what we're saying. The reason why there's a possibility for joy is because we believe in the sovereignty of God, which means that in a world of free will, people make dangerous decisions that harm many people, but God remains in control. He hasn't abandoned the situation. He hasn't abandoned the mess. He hasn't abandoned the messiness, but he actually draws nearer and he still remains in control over this crazy world. That's God's sovereignty. This is the reason why there is a possibility for us to experience a peace that passeth human understanding, and a joy that is simply irrational to the world is because we believe that God's still in control. So listen to this. Nothing in your life will or has ever happened where God is shocked and go, oh my me, what just happened? God's still in control. And it's not just this. When I say God's in control, it means because I believe that God is in the business, his character is, to take mess and brokenness and to create beautiful things, redemptive things, healing things out of our brokenness. This is why I would declare to you again and again, God's not done at Willow Church. While we can acknowledge there's been brokenness and pain, God can take brokenness and pain and redeem this situation. We don't have to diminish what transpired. We can be secure and speak truth because we believe that God is still in this church. And God is still at work. And here's even a more powerful truth, and it's this. Not only is God in control, God is with us. He's not at a distance going, "Um, oh, I'm in control, I hope you figure it out. He draws near. He's compassionate. He's tender. He's with you. No matter what you're going through, this morning, I, I do believe there's someone here who's feeling isolated and lonely and just feeling, does God even care? Hear these words, God not only cares, God is with you. He's with you. It's for that reason I can say we can experience joy beyond our circumstances. What does past, present, and future mean? Sometimes, if you're like me, I can get so obsessed by my future, and then I worry, and I have anxiety. Do I have everything figured out? How do I pay for my kids' college? What's going to happen with this, and this, and that? And the list goes on and on. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't plan or pray about our future, but my future is predicated on understanding what God has done for me in the past. I have to look back regularly to go, man, I was worried and anxious. I was fearful. I was stuck in mud, and yet God kept showing up. God proved faithful to me again and again and again. And here's this man with leprosy. Even in that moment, he stops because he realizes. I was once ill, but now I'm healed as christians every single day we celebrate i was once dead but now i'm alive by the power and grace of jesus christ regularly look back and celebrate all oh, this is what god did for me again and again and again oh i believe that jesus you made a way when there was no way you move mountains again and again and again Oh, hear those words. Last month, friends, I had a chance to go to my high school 30-year reunion, which is really interesting because I'm only 27 years old. But anyways, I went to my high school 30-year reunion, and I was really nervous. Why? Because two things. One, I lived a pretty suspect, shady life, made lots of bad decisions. And I was just afraid to run into people that would remember what I did in the past. And I think it's part of the reason why I've suppressed so much of my memories from junior high and high school. But anyways, I go to my high school reunion, and I meet a friend that I hadn't seen in 30 years. He reminds me, you and I went to middle school as well. Like, really? And I was just curious. I was like, tell me more about what I was like. Because I just forgotten. And he goes, Eugene, bro, you were a hothead. You had a really bad temper. You were always getting into fights. You were constantly getting beat up or beating up on others. On our graduation rehearsal, you got into a really bad fight. You got expelled from school. Your mom had to come to school, beg the principal to let you come in. And when he said this, my first reaction was, you wanna fight? No, just kidding. I was so embarrassed. At first, I was shrinking in embarrassment, my face red, and then I just felt the Holy Spirit saying, praise God, Eugene. Praise your Jesus because you were once like this and now God has been doing a work in your life. And while I'm not yet the man that God wants me to be, I'm not the man that I once was. So friends, right now, you need to know God is still at work in your life. God is still on the move, but make sure you look back and go, oh, praise God. And it compels us to worship. If I could sum this up, these five points into one analogy, one phrase to help you memorize what maybe you've learned through the sermon, it's this phrase, water your grass. Now, what do I mean by water your grass? You're, Very puzzled right now. What does this mean? Many of us, if not all of us, we've heard this phrase called, the grass is greener on the other side. It speaks to this idea that the situation, the circumstances in someone's life is just better. Someone's work, someone's family, someone's marriage, someone's parents someone's children someone's blank whatever the situation may be that phrase the grass is greener on the other side blunt talk my life sucks and that person's situation is so much better and what i'm trying to tell you is this is it possible that when you have this feeling that the grass is greener on the other side is it possible that the holy spirit might be trying to Pick on you, try to compel you, speak to you during those times. The Holy Spirit might be saying, Friend, child, son, daughter, Eugene, when the grass feels greener on the other side, it's time to water the grass you are standing on. <laughs> water your life, water your family, water your marriage, water your children. Think about this analogy of using these plants. Here's your life. At once you thought, man, I'm so blessed. God answered prayer after prayer. God's provision, God's kindness, God's mercy, God's grace. Things are going well, but the next thing you know, the grass seems greener on the other side. Someone's job, man, they make more than I do. Someone's car, Someone's marriage. You might not say it out loud in a way that hurts others, but in your heart, you're like, man, that person's marriage. That person's parents, all those children have better grades, behave better. And the next thing you know, we're seduced by someone else's situation. We start staring. We start comparing we start comparing and complaining. And friends, this is what I'm saying. If you feel that the grass is greener on the other side, water your grass. If you feel that someone's marriage is greener, water your spouse. If someone's children, water your children. If someone's parents looks greener, water your parents. Praise God that they're still with you here on this earth. If someone's church looks so much greener, Water your church, water your pastors, water your elders. What would it look like at every moment and situation when we're just so tempted and seduced by the other to consider, how do I water my life? Friends, can you rise to your feet at this time? As you're able, if you can rise to your feet, I want to close us in prayer. Can you just close your eyes, bow your heads for a moment? And I want you to put out your two hands, if you can. Just put out your two hands. There you go, right in front of you. And then, here it is. I want you to clench your fists now as hard as you can to the point that it almost hurts because you're clenching so hard. And we're going to keep it clenched for about 10 seconds Clench your fists. Clench it. Now let go. Release. Breathe in. Breathe out. Father, we thank you so much. Thank you that we are who you say that we are that before even we were born here on this earth, your word declares that we were fearfully and wonderfully made. Holy Spirit, we want to be the one who returns, who believes and lives this truth that Jesus is Lord, Savior, and Master. We want to choose joy and choose gratitude and choose faith every single day. And Holy Spirit, if there are moments and situations because we know that it happens to every one of us, when we feel tempted by the greener grass on the other side, Holy Spirit, help us to water our lives. To water our bodies, our health, our minds, our heart, to water our spouses, to water our friends, to water our children and parents, to water our church. This is our prayer. Thank you, God, so much for your amazing grace. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen amen hey let's give god a big round of applause for his goodness and grace friends i would love to join your staff in wishing you a happy thanksgiving a merry christmas and one final announcement just as a reminder as you exit if you're interested in meeting with the elders there's a meet and greet immediately after service water your lives god bless you